Well, Father, your uh, perfect love casts out all fear. <laughs> you tell us to cast all our anxieties upon you because you care for us. You encourage us to take courage, for, we are, for you are always at our side. Christ himself is our wisdom and our power. Christ himself is our peace and our hope. Christ himself is our joy and our, and our comfort. Christ is our all in all. And so, Father, this morning as we gather, we continue to pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might be guided more deeply into the truth of Christ and follow more faithfully in the way of Christ and receive more fully the life of Christ. And we offer you this prayer. In the name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, as many of you know, uh, I uh, spent a couple of years serving as a prison chaplain at a maximum security facility in New Jersey when I was in seminary. And one of the things I got an opportunity to do as part of that job is you get to walk the tiers where all the cells are, right? And the, the guys are in the cells and, um, and you get to visit with them while they're there. Boredom is, is something that those guys have to fight off every day. And so uh, they're always more than willing to, to talk to pass the time. You might even say you have a captive audience. <laughs> Couldn't resist that one. Anyway, you meet, uh, meet guys from all different walks of life, uh, and you hear all kinds of heartbreaking stories, of course, and uh, you learn more about, uh, you know, the crimes they committed than you probably could ever want to know. Um, what, what surprised me the most was how religious these guys were. Less than 1% of the prison population in the United States is atheist. Now, a lot of them maybe came into prison as an atheist, or maybe they didn't think about God very much at all, and they sort of came to faith while they were behind bars. But again, less than 1% of the inmate population is atheist. The vast majority come from the major world religions like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, uh, to a much lesser extent, sort of on the other side of the coin. You have these smaller groups who identify as Hindu or Sikh or Jewish. And then somewhere in between those sort of two groups, the big groups and the small groups, is this middle ground uh, where you have these outliers, what they call jailhouse religions that are more prevalent than you might realize. And, and that's where I think the conversations really got interesting. Um, in the two years I served there, um, I talked to black supremacists, black nationalists who were part of the nation of Islam, uh, or the even more extreme version of the nation of Islam called the Five percent nation. I talked to Native Americans who followed some of their, you know, original tribal beliefs. I talked to white supremacists who believe in Norse mythology like Odinism or Druidism and, and a whole host of others. And as I evangelized those men, one of the questions they always raised was, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? Why, why I mean, what a great question, right? And, and, and so, for example, I remember talking to a five percenter, and, and five percenters are these black supremacists who believe themselves to be gods and that all white people are devils, okay? They believe they possess secret knowledge about life and, and the universe that's only accessible to them through what they call a supreme alphabet or supreme mathematics. And as you can imagine, as I'm dialoguing with this guy, he's very eager to demonstrate how superior his knowledge was to mine. And after about an hour or so of listening to his lecture, I finally stopped him and said, hey, can I just ask you just kind of a, a basic question just to help me understand? And he's like, sure. And I was like, okay, well, if it is true that you are a god and that I am a devil, can you help me understand why our roles are not reversed? Like, like, why are you there in a cell and I'm out here? 
How in the world is a God, could you allow a white devil spawn system to imprison you? Are you sure this isn't just all wishful thinking? Not really based in reality. He didn't have much of an answer, of course, and so he fires the question back at me. Well, why do you believe what you believe? I'm, I'm glad you asked, right? Love that. I believe what I believe because there was a literal baby in a manger and a literal cross on a hillside and a literal empty tomb where a literal physical human body once lay. I believe what I believe because hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ, touched his resurrection body, heard his resurrection voice. I believe what I believe because you can actually go to these places. You can see these things. Unlike your faith, the Christian faith is not based on wishful thinking. It is not simply another human philosophy that someone came up with somewhere along the way to make us all feel better. It's not even a, just a, a basic moral or ethical system. It is based on historical facts, events that actually took place in human history. And that gives me a firm foundation on which to base my beliefs. So, and here was always my challenge, right? I want to challenge you to place your faith in the risen Christ. Now, I wish I could tell you that he sort of got on his knees right there in that moment and prayed the sinner's prayer. He didn't, but I, that's okay. I trust that the seeds were planted, and I don't know where he ended up, but, but I trust that the Lord does. And I had similar conversations with white supremacists who believed in Odin and Thor or Druids or New Agers or, again, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, you name it. And what all of those conversations had in common was that I could point to real events and historical facts on which to base my faith, whereas the inmates or even the other chaplains that I was talking to could not. And that, friends, is what makes the Christian faith different. All right, that's what sets it apart. If I may be so bold, that's what makes it true. That's what makes it true. And it's not about proving how much better we are than anybody else. That's not what this is about. It's not about pride and ego. It's not about putting others down. It is about understanding the call to lead people from death to life, from darkness to light, from, from hell to heaven, friends. All right? That, that's what should grip us. That's what we should have a burning burden for, for, for those who do not yet follow Christ, whose lives are destined for eternal darkness unless they respond to the good news of the gospel. This is what drove the Apostle Paul. It's why he testified in Jerusalem. It's why he testified in Rome. It's what drove him to keep proclaiming the gospel, no matter what hostility or opposition that he faced. He knew his future was secure. He knew his eternity was set, but he also knew there were so many other people out there who didn't have that assurance. And so he did everything he could to share Christ with those around him. He took every opportunity he could to point people to Christ, whether it was before rioting crowds or the, or the Sanhedrin, right, or the Roman governor and his court. And again, here's the really cool thing. You could actually go and see the places where these things happened. All right, consider where we left off last week, right at the end of Acts 23. The Apostle Paul's just been taken to Caesarea Maritima and placed under house arrest in Herod's Praetorium. Guess what? You can actually go there today. You can actually see it. You can walk there. You can actually stand on the very spot where Paul was under house arrest. All right, as Christy and I did about a year and a half ago, and where he made his defense of the gospel. So here, if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and open them um, to the book of Acts, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew or the chair around you. Go ahead and grab that. That's what we're going to be spending our time today, Acts 24. And there are three main things I want us to walk away with this morning. The first is this, God's direction. 
God's direction. If you flip back just one page to Acts 23, 11, you'll see one of the verses we focused on last week. It's a verse that really sets the tone for what's going to happen to Paul in the rest of the book of Acts. Acts 23, 11, right? The following night, the Lord stood by him. This is when Paul was in prison waiting to be transported up to Caesarea. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You've heard me say it over and over again throughout this series, right? The church of Jesus Christ... That this thing that God is doing, friends, is a living, breathing miracle. It brings together Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It crosses all kinds of political and social barriers. It breaks down every dividing wall of hostility. That is the vision, that is the direction that God gave to the Apostle Paul for his church. She was to be founded on one great foundation, and that is Christ alone. Right? She was to be given one great commission, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ alone. And her life was to be framed by one great commandment, and that was to love God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength, and her neighbor, yes, even her enemies, as herself. This is why the Apostle Paul preaches to both Jew and Gentile alike. It's why he went to both synagogues as well as the public square. It's why he longed to preach in the temple in Jerusalem and before Caesar in Rome. Paul believed God had a plan for his life. God had given a direction for his life. And ever since that fateful day that he was knocked to the ground outside Damascus and struck blind by the risen Christ, Paul knew his life would then be dedicated to taking this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, people here at Pepsi, nothing has changed. Not one comma, not one period, or as the Bible puts it, not one jot, not one tittle, not one iota. The church is still founded on the great declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is still governed by the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the church is still propelled outward by the great commission to make disciples of all nations starting right outside our front door. This is why we exist. It's to share the gospel with people from all walks of life, no matter their background or life experience or socioeconomic status or political affiliation, age, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, culture, you name it. I I was so blessed yesterday. I got to go to one of our families, one of our Indian families, one of our Telugu families. They invited me over. They bought a new house. They wanted to do a house blessing. They invited all their Hindu friends all their, all their neighbors, all the people, and they wanted to celebrate, and they asked me to come and share and, and, and to bless them and to share the gospel with the people that was there. Such an awesome thing. That's the call, right? That's what we're called to do, all right? And God wants our church, yes, our little church right here in Parker, Colorado, to be a living, breathing reflection of the church triumphant in heaven. Amen? That's God's vision. That's God's direction. That's our goal. That's what we want here at Pepsi. Just like the Apostle Paul, we want a church that only Jesus is strong enough to hold together. Yeah, that's, that's our heartbeat. But that, of course, raises an issue, and, and it brings me to my second point this morning. You got God's direction, and then you got humanity's rejection. Over and over again, we just reject God's direction for our lives, do we not? I mean, on a personal level, on a corporate level, you name it, 
Look at what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a great summary of the problem that Paul keeps running into as he preaches the gospel and plants these churches all over the Roman Empire. It's the idea that a man executed on a Roman cross could be the Messiah was anathema to the Jewish people. It's blasphemy because everybody knew, or at least thought they knew, that when Messiah returned, he would come in power and he would kick the Romans out and he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth. No one expected the Messiah to die on a cross. No one expected the Messiah to have to rise from the grave. And when I say no one, I mean no one. It wasn't just the last thing on their minds. This wasn't even the same galaxy. No one was talking about this. No one was thinking about this. And so when Paul comes along, a former Pharisee, a former leader in in Judaism, right, preaching Christ crucified, his fellow Jews thought he had lost his ever-loving mind. That's why, Paul, when, when Paul, that's why Paul says the gospel presents a stumbling block to the Jews because they can't conceive of a crucified Messiah. And that's frankly the rationale, really, behind the argument that the Jewish leaders make before Felix in Caesarea. It's why things get, keep getting stirred up. That's why they're so angry. All right? Look back at Acts 24, 1 through 9. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, All right, you go down, down from the mountain, all the way down to the coast, right, to Caesarea, with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we've enjoyed much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and in every way and everywhere we accept all of this with gratitude. He's kind of buttering him up, right? But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man to be a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. That's how radical what Paul was preaching, right? that's, That's the radical nature of what he was preaching. He's stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jewish leaders also joined in the charge, affirming that all those things were so. Again, Paul's beliefs were so radical to the Jewish leaders that no matter where he went, he stirred up all kinds of trouble. They just responded in so much anger. And of course, that's the last thing the Romans want. They wanted peace. And the way they kept the peace was they brutally and violently put down every potential revolt possible. And now here you have Tertullus accusing Paul of being a plague, a theological disease that is setting the entire empire on edge and a ringleader in a dangerous new sect called the Nazarenes who claimed Jesus, a man executed on a cross by Roman decree, was now the king and not Caesar. All right? You can imagine the danger that puts Paul in. The Jewish leaders want him killed. They want this Nazarene threat ended. They want to stamp out Christianity before it even begins. But of course, that's not the only problem that Paul faces. He's in double jeopardy here because not only is the gospel a stumbling block to the Jews, it's folly to the Gentiles. The idea that God would come down in human flesh wasn't a totally foreign idea for the pagans, right? They told stories about Zeus doing it all the time. Now, what's crazy about this is this idea that God would allow himself to be killed in the most excruciating and humiliating fashion ever devised by human beings. 
It's the idea that God would subject himself to torture and abuse and unimaginable pain and suffering. That is simply not what the gods did. That very idea was lunacy. And that's what's got Felix so intrigued because he knows Paul's an otherwise smart guy. Like, what is it about this guy that makes him believe such nonsense? So you jump down to Acts 24, verses 22 through 27. All right, this is the account of Paul before Felix. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that, he should be, that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, literally means terrified. He was terrified and said, go away for the presence, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He wanted a bribe. So he sent for him often. And conversed with him. When the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, so Paul was a curiosity for Felix, nothing more. Felix grew up a slave. Um, he and his brother were close friends of the, of the household of Emperor Claudius, and they were set free during his reign. And he used those political connections to rise through the ranks to the position of governor. In fact, he's the first slave in the Roman Empire to ever do so. And he, but he earned a reputation along the way for violence and corruption and greed. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that a man like Felix, who has spent his entire life chasing wealth and power at the expense of others, can't get his head and his heart around a guy like Paul who would willingly sacrifice those things in favor of the gospel. In fact, Felix was terrified when Paul spoke to him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment of God because he knew the kind of man he was and he understood enough of the way. That's what they called Christianity in those early days. He understood enough of the way, probably from his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, to understand the consequences if Paul was right. And yet Paul never relents. He keeps meeting with Felix and the implication is he keeps preaching to Felix. And though there's never any evidence, Felix responds, that doesn't seem to discourage Paul. He keeps just right on doing it. Now, I imagine all of us can probably sympathize with Paul on some level here, right? We all have people in our lives that we have been sharing Christ with maybe for years. And, and for whatever reason, they haven't responded. We probably all know committed, very religious people of maybe all kinds of different faiths who believe they're righteous enough, they're good enough, they've done enough to tilt the scales, so to speak, in their favor, and they don't need a Messiah, much less a Messiah who dies. <laughs> and so the message of Christ crucified continues to be a stumbling block between them and saving faith, just like it was for Ananias and the other Jewish leaders. On the flip side, we probably all know people who are not religious, right? People who feel like religion exists to squash all their fun, right? People who live their lives without a care in the world for what God thinks, much less what God commands. And they aren't looking for a Messiah at all because they don't believe they need saving. Right? They, they probably, they may, not be, they may not believe in life after death. And so this world is all there is. Why not do what you can and make the most of this life, right? And the message of the cross is foolishness to them, just like it was for Felix. So what then makes the difference? What actually has to take place in the human heart to raise it from death to life, to transfer it from darkness to light, to, 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 to lead it from hell to heaven? Well, friends, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the electing power of God in a person's life. 
He's the regenerative force that transforms us from the inside out, granting us the gift of faith so we might respond to God's call in our lives. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Again, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Gentile alike, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It was the Holy Spirit that changed Paul. Uh, It was the Holy Spirit that opened Paul's eyes to see that everything he knew about the, the law and the prophets, everything that had happened in the Old Testament, everything from Abraham and Sarah all the way to the present day was all part of God's covenantal plan to save his people. It all pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And what really sealed the deal for Paul there was the resurrection Listen to what he says in Acts 24, 14 and 15. This is the heart of his case, the heart of his defense, right? I confess this to you according to the way which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You see, when when confronted with the truth of the risen Christ, Paul had a choice to make. Would he adjust his worldview to the truth, or would he try and adjust the truth to his worldview? Thankfully, Paul chose to accept the truth of Christ, and the rest is history. What about you? How do you respond to the gospel, friends? Is it a stumbling block? Are you like the religious leaders, believing you are good enough? righteousness, righteous enough for God. I cannot tell you how many bedsides I have stood, stood beside as people lay dying, Christians lay dying. And when I ask them, are you ready to meet Jesus? They say, well, I think I've lived a good enough life. That ain't it. That ain't it. It's because of what Christ has done that we can stand in his presence, friends. That's the gospel. All right? Or maybe it's foolishness. Maybe you find the whole idea of God coming to earth for you to be utter nonsense, unnecessary. I know a lot of people like that too. Well, friends, there's a third option, and I want to urge you with all my heart to take this third option this morning, if you haven't already, and that is to respond to the Spirit's call. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you the gift of saving faith. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with His wisdom and His power and His authority. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the truth of the risen Christ. As we transition to the table this morning, this is what we celebrate. And our kids are going to be coming back in to join us here in a minute. But uh, here's the deal, friends. You don't have to have it all together. That's the other, other side to this. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all your doubts settled or your questions answered or your theology on point. This isn't about you cleaning up your life to the point where Jesus will accept you. He accepts you as you are. Amen. Right now, in this moment, he knows everything about you, even stuff you don't know about yourself. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And you just simply have to accept that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That you're a broken man or a broken woman needing healing. That you are helpless to change yourself, helpless to save yourself. And you need God to intervene. Accepting Christ represents a starting line, not a finish line 
in life, friends. It represents new birth, new creation. It represents not a second chance, but really another first chance to start all over again and live the life that God has designed you to live. That's the gift that God offers those he calls. He's calling every single one of you this morning, every single person here, every single person online. He's calling you right here, right now, to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, again, what we celebrate at this table, right? We come to this table month after month, sometimes Sunday after Sunday. And what do we say? We say the most amazing words we could possibly say, representing the most amazing truth that there could possibly be, Christ giving his life for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, sitting with his disciples, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he blesses it, and he, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and he says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. And after supper, he lifts up the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember me. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. It washes you clean. The Apostle Paul says that every time we eat the bread and every time we drink the cup, what do we remember? We remember the Lord's saving death until he comes again. We remember what he did, dying on a cross and rising again for our salvation. This is the gift that God offers to his people. This is the gift that God offers to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who place their faith in him. And so, this morning, I just want to encourage you, we'll take a, a couple of minutes just to be quiet. Let the Holy Spirit speak and do his work in us. Some of us may have some business to do this morning with Jesus, and I want to encourage you to take advantage of that and to do that. So let's do that, and then we will come to the table and share the meal together. Let's spend just a, a couple of moments in quiet. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak. Father, we um, humble ourselves before you. I almost want to come on, come on our knees to the table just in awe of what you have done. Many of us here have received Christ and we celebrate that and we, this meal for us is, it's, it's pure joy. And there may be others here who have not yet received Christ. And so, Father, I just want to, to, to say it's, it's okay to not come. It's okay to continue to let the Holy Spirit do his work. It's, it's okay to be on the journey. Father, wherever we find ourselves today, we know that you are a God who meets us where we're at. We thank you for it. Thank you for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus. Ask our elders to come forward, our servants.